Hey, everybody. This is Kelly from True Crime IRL, and I have a fun announcement. This December, I am joining forces with the captain from True Crime Garage, and we are doing a live show together. It's a true crime show. Well, yeah, that's that's what we do, Captain. True crime. First, I'd like to say hello. Thanks for joining me. Uh, and and me. I will be there too, Kelly from True Crime IRL. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about some of our favorite and most controversial cases that we have covered. And we're going to do a little Q&A session. I'm going to be asking the captain a lot of questions that you're going to want to know the answers to. There's a good question. Here's one I get asked a lot. Captain, how do you maintain your sexiness? Um, no, we will not be talking about your sexiness at this show, Captain. We're going to be talking about true crime. I don't mean to correct your expertise, but you missed something. What I miss? To tell them what the location possibly was. Oh, right, right, right. The Blind Pig at 120 North Walnut Street in Champaign, Illinois. It seems at least on this property that there was actual buildings. Wow. Nothing gets past you. Yes. It's a building. There are buildings. We are doing our show in a building called The Blind Pig, and it's a bar. So if you want to join the captain and I for an amazing night of true crime and fun, beers and blood, mayhem and murder, it's really about setting the tone for the show. Join us at the Blind Pig Company, 120 North Walnut Street in Champaign, Illinois, on Saturday, December 11th at 6 p.m. Go to CaptainFatHands.com slash events to buy your tickets. Check it out. And until then, lock your doors, people. Bye-bye. Cheers. Lock your jib. How many people do you think will be coming? 2011. No, probably not. Welcome to True Crime IRL, True Crime in Real Life. I'm your host, Kelly Barron's Brink. Michelle Green was born May 15, 1997, and died in April 2001. Although four years would go by before anyone other than her killers would know it. Because Erica's body remained unclaimed and unidentified until 2005. For years, the Kansas City community would know this little girl only as Precious Doe. Erica's story is one of the hardest stories I've ever discussed here on True Crime IRL, but I have to tell it. As a mom, knowing how precious my kids are to me 
It's so hard to think about what happened to Erica and what so many abused children are going through every day. But I really want to use this show as a platform to discuss more of the cases that are not well known and aren't covered routinely by the mainstream media. Just note that this episode carries a strong content warning. It involves the brutal murder of a child. And if that's not something you're able to handle listening to right now, you'll want to skip this episode. Kansas City made national headlines 16 years ago when a toddler's body was found decapitated in Hibbs Park in Kansas City. At that time, a special group formed to always remember Precious Doe. KCTV5's Carolyn Long explains why today is so important to them. Today would have been, and should have been, Erica Green's 20th birthday. Instead, the three-year-old was decapitated by her stepfather, Harrell Johnson, and her mother, Michelle, helped to hide the crime. Not only did you let him murder your child, you let him disfigure your child, cut her head off, you took and you married him and had another child with him. For four years, no one came forward to identify this little girl. So Kansas Cityans took it upon themselves to claim her, naming her Precious Doe, especially this small group who call themselves the Precious Doe Committee. We just said she's gonna be our baby. This committee has made it their mission to empower the community, begging everyone to pay more attention to all of the kids around them. The people need to come off their decks, yep. off their patios, come to your front porch, see what's going on in your neighborhood. We need you to know it's tools out here. It's things so these babies don't get caught up in this crossfire. Tonight at 5.30, this Precious Doe Committee is throwing a birthday party of sorts for Erica Green at Hibbs Park at 59th and Kensington, complete with cake and ice cream and food trucks. And law enforcement who were intimately involved in that case years ago will also be in attendance to help pass out crime prevention tools so tragic stories like this don't happen again. Erica's story begins in April 1997, when her mother, Michelle Johnson, was serving a six-month prison sentence at the Mabel Bassett Correctional Center in McLeod, Oklahoma, on theft and forgery charges. Michelle was pregnant with Erica at the time and would give birth just one month into her sentence. Erica was the fifth of eight children that her mother would eventually give birth to. Babies number four and then five both tested positive for cocaine and other drugs after birth. And Erica's mother was still actively using drugs during her pregnancy with Erica. Michelle would later end up losing custody of all of her children due to addiction and abuse. Michelle was taken from the Correctional Center to the Oklahoma University Medical Center on May 14, 1997 to give birth to Erica. Although some correctional centers in the U.S. do allow new mothers to bring their infants back to the facility to raise them while they're serving their time, this particular institution did not allow that. So Michelle was faced with a dilemma. Who was going to take care of her new baby while she was in prison? Erica's biological father, Larry Green, was also in prison at the time she was born, serving a 10-year sentence. So Michelle's options were limited. Michelle contacted Erica's paternal grandmother, Betty Green, and told her about her situation. 
Mrs. Green told Michelle that she had a friend who often fostered children in need, and she would have her friend, Betty Brown, contact her. Betty Brown contacted Michelle the same day and agreed to take her baby until Michelle was out of prison. Michelle gave birth to Erica the next day, on May 15, 1997. Michelle was taken back to the correctional center just about two hours after giving birth without her newborn daughter. This personally makes me very sad because I've delivered three children and I remember how exhausting and emotional and painful of a process that is. I cannot imagine having to get cleaned up, get dressed, and travel back to any place, let alone a prison just two short hours after giving birth. That's barely even enough time to do the bare minimum of paperwork and basic medical care that takes place after giving birth to a child. And leaving your sweet newborn baby behind would be absolutely heart-wrenching. The slight consolation would be that Betty Brown would be arriving at the OU Medical Center that day to pick up the child. She signed a one-page form, showed her driver's license and a Sam's Club card as identification, and she was given custody of Erica. She took Erica home with her that day without a background check or any other investigation of character and with no guidance or standards as to custody, care, or reunification with the parents of this newborn child. However, Betty Brown loved Erica like her own child, and Erica grew to love Betty during the three years she would live with her. Erica's paternal grandmother chose wisely when recommending a caretaker for Erica. Betty had fostered approximately 500 children over her lifetime, and she loved helping kids. She made sure that when they were in her care, they were well-fed, they had decent clothes to wear, but that they also felt safe, loved, and cared about. She did not just merely provide a place to stay, but she gave those kids the love and attention they so desperately needed. Months passed into years, and Erica was growing into an independent and very happy little girl while she was living with Betty Brown. In spring of 2001, Betty would purchase a new Easter dress for Erica. Erica loved pretty dresses, but she would sadly never get to wear this one. When Michelle was released from prison, she rarely visited Erica, and the visits were quick. She never stayed more than a few minutes, and she never made mention of taking back custody of Erica. That is, until one day in April 2001, when Michelle came to Betty's house along with her boyfriend, Harrell Johnson, and his six-month-old child. She told Betty that they were going to a family reunion and they wanted to take Erica along. And this would be the last time Betty Brown saw Erica. It's not completely clear what prompted Michelle to make the decision to take Erica with her to Kansas City. After serving her time in the prison at the Mabel Bassett Correctional Center in McLeod, Oklahoma, and being released, Michelle was living with her boyfriend, Harrell Johnson, 
She was heavily back into the drug scene and she had no money, and having a toddler around seems like it would have been a burden to Michelle, especially since Erica was still living a happy life with Betty Brown. Michelle and Harrell had met and hooked up a few years prior to going to Kansas City, but according to Harrell, it was an on and off relationship. Michelle had been living in Chicago for a while, but being broke and homeless, she returned to Muskogee, Oklahoma and resumed her relationship with Harrell. Harrell had no permanent place to live at that time either, and he was just basically squatting wherever he could, sometimes with his mother or his grandfather. Michelle and Harrell were both unemployed and had outstanding warrants for their arrest. Harrell suggested they get out of town and go to his cousin's home in Kansas City where they could hide out and possibly both find work. Work to Michelle and Harrell usually consisted of selling drugs and prostitution. But in April 2001, Michelle picked Erica up from Betty, telling Betty that she wanted to take Erica for the weekend. Michelle and Harrell loaded the car with Erica and Harrell's six-month-old child and headed for Kansas City. Unbeknownst to Betty Brown, they never intended on coming back. Betty said she missed Erica terribly after she was gone and she worried about her all the time. But to her, it was the case of a mother taking back her child. Betty felt as though she didn't have any control or say in the situation. Harrell Johnson stated that Erica often cried and wanted to go back to Betty, the only mother she had ever known. Harrell's cousin in Kansas City, who they were living with, said she often heard Harrell beating Erica and heard the little girl screaming and crying. Police weren't searching for Erica Green on the chilly evening of April 28, 2001, because there were no reports of a missing child fitting her description. Instead, they were searching for a missing elderly man that they thought may have wandered into a wooded area near Hibbs Park in Kansas City and gotten lost. Their priorities quickly changed when they happened upon the nude, decapitated body of a small African-American girl who they thought to be around three to six years old. They later pinned it down to a closer age range of three to four years old. Without a head and with no missing persons reports of children this age, it would be nearly impossible to discover this child's identity. Police soon began releasing information to news outlets, both locally and nationally, hoping someone would see or hear the news and contact them. But that just didn't happen. Three days after their initial discovery on May 1st, 2001, while searching the scene for more evidence, they found Erica's missing head, about 200 yards southeast from where they had found her body. It was wrapped in two garbage bags and had been dumped. This news spread rapidly through the community and they were shaken. Could there be a child murderer amongst them? Volunteers got to work putting up posters, passing out flyers, and knocking on doors. They searched for someone, anyone, who might know this little girl's identity, but nobody opened up about anything. 
police were baffled by the fact that no one was searching for or filing a missing persons report for this toddler. There were so many questions, but no answers at this point. Law enforcement and investigators were giving this case everything they had to identify this tiny victim and notify possible family members. Since no one knew who this little girl was, the police investigators and volunteers lovingly assigned her the name of Precious Doe so they would have something to call her. She deserved an identity. DNA was collected, an autopsy was performed, and the cause of death was determined. Surprisingly, the cause of death was not decapitation. The medical examiner determined that the body was decapitated after death. But the autopsy did reveal that Erica had suffered multiple injuries to her head. There were several oval-shaped defects and cuts in various areas of her scalp and face. There was also hemorrhaging. According to the medical examiner, there were areas of injury from blunt impact. The skull was intact, but inside the skull, there was a subdural hematoma or a blood clot. These injuries made it obvious that Erica had been shaken violently and suffered a hellish beating. The medical examiner also determined that Erica had probably lived for about 10 hours after sustaining these injuries. If Michelle and Harrell had called for medical help, she probably would have survived. Composite sketches were made to try to identify this child, but still, nobody came forward. Her still unidentified body, known to authorities and the community only as Precious Doe, was buried at a funeral that was held for her in December 2001. Volunteers raised money for a memorial in Hibbs Park for Precious Doe and for her funeral. There was only a painted poster on her grave identifying her as Precious Doe. Hey there, this is Kelly, and I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to True Crime IRL. Because of your support, our show has grown a lot over the last few months. I especially wanted to take a moment to thank Kelsey J. in Indiana, Jamie F. in Kansas City, Missouri, and Alex M. in Florida for dropping a tip into the TCIRL tip jar. Your donations go a long way in helping to keep the lights on, so to speak. If you would like to support the show, there are a few ways to do that. First, you can go to truecrimeirl.com and click on the donate button in the middle right side of the homepage to drop a tip into the tip jar. Next, you can unlock lots of special features by becoming a patron. Just go to patreon.com slash truecrimeirlpodcast for more information on supporting the show. You can buy True Crime IRL merch on the website, truecrimeirl.com. Just click merch in the top menu. And finally, subscribe to the show and review it. Your five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen is a huge help in getting the word out about our podcast. Again, Thank you to those who donated recently. You guys are amazing and I can't thank you enough. And thank you to everyone listening right now.
The Johnsons later admitted that they had watched the news stories about Precious Doe, but never considered coming forward with information of their missing child or to give her back her name. They were only concerned about staying out of jail so that they could continue their lifestyle of drug use and crime. So why didn't the cousin they were living with come forward about the missing child? She had to have seen the news stories. She knew that Erica was missing from the home while the mother and stepfather were still there. She must have had thoughts that Precious Doe could have been Erica. She had said that she often heard Harrell beating Erica and heard her screaming. How could a person just stand by and listen to a child being harmed like that without taking action? She could have made an anonymous phone call, but she didn't. Years would pass, but people would not stop fighting for the victim they knew only as Precious Doe. Erica's body was exhumed twice, once in 2002 for a new autopsy, and again in 2003 for a study of the skull in order to create a bust of how she may have looked. The police continued releasing news reports to both local and national news outlets, but nobody was coming forward with information. The case was featured several times on shows like America's Most Wanted and Cold Case Files, which reaped over a thousand tips, but none of them were of any benefit to solving the case or identifying this body. There were just no clues as to where this little girl had come from, how she got there, or who committed this awful crime. So, having no clues or information other than a body and a head, and not knowing where to go next, the case went cold. There was one very special man who was fighting exceptionally hard for Precious Doe, and he never gave up. Alonzo Washington was a comic book writer and a strong community activist in the Kansas City area. He raised $33,000 in reward money and released a comic book about the case. This man never gave up on finding Precious Doe's identity and the truth about what had really happened to her. He was on a mission to find the person who committed this horrible crime. Every year on the anniversary of Precious Doe's body being found, he would release a new ad in a local African-American newspaper, the Kansas City Call, urging anyone with information in the case to come forward. And it was one of those ads that brought forward a witness that had the information that finally would solve this case. A man named Thurman McIntosh saw the ad and made a phone call on April 30th, 2005 that broke the case wide open. Thurman McIntosh was Harrell Johnson's grandfather and lived in Muskogee, Oklahoma. Harrell and Michelle had spent time staying at his grandfather's home when they had no other place to go. They never stayed in any one place for very long at one time, but the grandfather had seen Erica and knew what Erica looked like. Harrell Johnson lived in Muskogee, Oklahoma, but Harrell's grandfather knew that Harrell had been in Kansas City in the spring of 2001 with his wife and her three-year-old daughter. Thurman McIntosh also knew that when they returned to Oklahoma, Erica wasn't with them. Michelle told the grandfather that Erica was with someone else. 
But after reading Alonzo's ad, the grandfather, knowing Harrell and Michelle's history of drug abuse, among other things, strongly suspected that Erica was precious dough. He called Alonzo to tell him what he was thinking about Erica. Alonzo notified the Kansas City homicide detectives and the grandfather, Thurman McIntosh, was brought in for questioning on May 4, 2005. He brought with him photos of a girl that he thought was Erica and hair samples from Michelle. And again, he told his story to the detectives. As it turned out, the photos weren't Erica, but were of her cousin. But the DNA from the hair samples matched Precious Doe. Now, the Johnsons were both incarcerated, again, at that time for other crimes, but they were brought in for questioning, and they both admitted to their roles in Erica's murder. Harrell Johnson told investigators that Erica was being a bad girl on the fateful evening in April of 2001 when she lost her life. He claimed that he was drunk and under the influence of the drug PCP and that he lost his temper when Erica wouldn't go to bed. But the medical report would tell the full story. The report stated that Erica had multiple injuries consistent with being kicked to the back of the head, the front of the head, the right temple area, and the top of the head. There were other injuries that appeared to be caused by blows with a round flat object consistent with an ashtray. Michelle Johnson watched as her boyfriend violently beat Erica and threw her to the floor where she fell unconscious. Erica's mother would claim that she made an attempt to revive Erica by placing her in a bathtub and splashing her with cold water, but that obviously didn't help. After this, Michelle returned Erica to the bedroom, placed her on the floor, closed the door, and left her there for two days. This little girl would die a horribly painful death alone in a room by herself. Harrell and Michelle discussed calling for medical help, but they decided against it because they both had outstanding arrest warrants against them. A pediatric neurosurgeon would later testify during the trial that if the couple had quickly sought medical attention for Erica, doctors probably could have both saved the child and reversed the damage that had been done. But instead, on the night of April 28, 2001, Harrell and Michelle took Erica's body out of the home during the night so that neighbors would not see them. Harrell Johnson would say they left through the bedroom window, although Harrell's cousin had later said they had taken Erica out in a stroller and left walking with her. Harrell grabbed some bags and hedge clippers and they walked with Erica's body to a wooded area near the home in Hibbs Park in Kansas City. They removed Erica's clothes and Michelle claimed she then walked away, leaving Harrell alone with the child's body. Harrell then cut off Erica's head with the hedge clippers, put it in a plastic garbage bag, and discarded it in a nearby church dumpster. He said he did this in an attempt to hide Erica's identity so it wouldn't connect them to the murder. 
Michelle later became worried that the church congregation might smell the human decomposition odor. So they retrieved Erica's head from the dumpster, went back to the wooded area, and dumped the head about 200 yards away from the body. When questioned by Harrell's cousin as to where Erica had gone, Michelle first told her that Erica was sick and being cared for by someone else, and then eventually told her that Betty Brown had come and taken her back to Muskogee because she had legal custody of Erica. Around this time, Erica's biological father, Larry Green, came back into the picture. After serving his 10-year sentence, Green filed a two-page handwritten lawsuit in federal court against the Department of Corrections, DHS, and the OU Medical Center, stating that the center released custody of his daughter, Erica, to Betty Brown with no background check, no guidance or standards of care, custody, or the possible reunification of Erica with her parents. Green was questioned by the judge about why he didn't come forward with the lawsuit sooner. He told the judge that since he was in prison for 10 years, he was unable to obtain the needed information, records, evidence, and documents needed to bring the suit forward. Larry Green also claimed that officials were aware of Michelle's drug use while pregnant. As I said before, in 1993, her third child tested positive for cocaine at birth. And then, in 1995, Michelle's fourth child also tested positive for cocaine. In 1997, while she was pregnant with Erica, she was still openly using drugs. So Larry Green stated that Michelle should have been deemed an unfit mother and should not have ever been permitted to care for Erica. It was Larry Green's stance that his daughter, Erica, fell through the cracks of the system and that if authorities had not ignored all of these red flags, the little girl may never have met such a horrific fate. Green also requested in the lawsuit that DHS and the OU Medical Center should adopt better policies for dealing with babies born to incarcerated individuals. The judge allowed the case to move forward and he assigned an attorney to help Green with the case. Larry Green eventually won. New policies were written and Green was awarded a monetary settlement in the case, but that would not bring Erica back. Several Oklahoma agencies have agreed to settle a lawsuit in the death of a young girl. Larry Green filed a suit against the Oklahoma Department of Human Services, the Department of Corrections, and the University of Oklahoma Medical Center in 2001 for the death of his daughter, Erica Green. The young girl's beheaded body was found in Kansas City, Missouri. She was known as Precious Doe until her remains were identified in 2005. Her mother and stepfather, Michelle and Harold Johnson, were convicted in her death and are currently serving out their sentences. Green will receive an unspecified payment in the settlement. Also, as part of the settlement, the agencies will develop procedures for DHS to find safe homes for babies born to mothers who are in prison. While the Johnsons were in jail awaiting their trials, Harrell Johnson wrote numerous jailhouse letters to his wife, trying to convince her to change her story and reject a plea deal. Johnson's letters to Michelle were kind in the beginning, assuring her that they could beat the case. He concocted a new story that blamed the death of Erica on another man they called Mike Mike, but Michelle refused. 
She ended up pleading guilty in the 2001 death after being offered a plea deal and agreed to testify against Harrell Johnson. When he learned of her decision to testify against him, he quickly changed the tone of his letters from loving and concerned to threatening and vulgar. He threatened to have Michelle killed before the start of the trial. Luckily, that didn't happen, and because of Michelle's testimony, Harrell Johnson was sentenced to life in prison without probation or parole. I asked him, what did he do? What did he say? He said that he cut her head off. Tonight, Harrell Johnson's wife describes the murder of the little girl Kansas City knew as Precious Doe and the cover-up that went on for years. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, the evidence is all in at the murder trial of 29-year-old Harrell Johnson. The jury will begin deliberating tomorrow following an emotional day of testimony today. KMBC Night's Peggy Bright is live at the Jackson County Courthouse with tonight's top story. Peggy? Well, Larry, Harrell Johnson confessed on videotape. Michelle Johnson testified against him today in court. Their stories differ in the detail, but both of them admit to their role in the killing of three-year-old Erica Green, better known in Kansas City as Precious Doe. That was Michelle Johnson's reaction to her then-boyfriend, Harrell Johnson, when he violently kicked little Erica in the head in the spring of 2001. The couple was staying at this Kansas City home back then, close to the park where Erica's headless body was found. We couldn't show Michelle's face today as she described her efforts to revive Erica. I put her in the bathtub. She didn't get up. She didn't respond. She didn't wake up. So I took her out the bathroom and then I laid her on the floor. In Michelle's testimony and Harrell's videotaped confession, they both admitted they didn't seek medical help for Erica because they had outstanding warrants. Harrell Johnson fought back tears watching his confession. High on drugs, Harrell told investigators about cutting off Erica's head with hedge clippers and dumping her remains in the woods. He also said he knew about Kansas City's search for Erica's identity. What he was saying right there, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. And that is at the heart of the defense. They're saying that he did not premeditate this crime, which means he's not guilty of first-degree murder. But the prosecution says that the premeditation came in when they decided to let Erica go without medical help. We're live at the Jackson County Courthouse. Back to you, Larry. Peggy, what were the main differences then in the Johnson stories? Well, Michelle Johnson said she was not there when uh, Harrell Johnson cut off her head before they dumped the body. He says she was there. The other thing was that Michelle says Erica died in about 10 hours. Harrell Johnson says it was over a couple of days. Peggy Bright Live. Thank you very much, Peggy. Michelle Johnson has already pleaded guilty to second-degree murder. The jury begins deliberations for Harrell Johnson after closing arguments tomorrow morning. As part of her plea deal, Michelle was sentenced to only 25 years in prison for her part in her daughter's murder. Kelly, today for the first time we heard from the man convicted of killing Precious Doe. Harrell Johnson proclaimed his innocence, words that rang hollow with the judge who sentenced him to spend the rest of his life in prison. 
It's been seven years, seven months, and 25 days. And I think justice was served today. Marcy Williams was one of those who mourned for the little girl Kansas City knew for years only as Precious Doe. Her decapitated body found in some woods near 59th and Kensington in 2001. It took four years to learn her true identity, Erica Green. Her mother and her stepfather were convicted of her murder. Today at his sentencing, Harrell Johnson claimed he did not receive a fair trial and denied killing Erica. You know, people don't know me. You just know what... These people didn't cooked up, and what I was forced to say, that's all you know. But never once have I harmed a hair on her head or did anything to hurt her. The judge responded by calling Johnson a textbook sociopath who would not take responsibility for his actions. You committed acts that were ghoulish, vile, and by any measure revolting. Those thoughts were echoed by Police Sergeant Dave Bernard, who led the search to find the little girl's identity and then find her killer. I've dealt with these kind of people my whole career. You know, they're people with holes in their souls. They just don't, they don't care anything about but themselves. He wants to say he didn't have in his rights and how his rights were denied, but he denied the rights of a three-year-old child. We don't have to worry about what's going to happen to him because at this point, he's going to have to answer to the man upstairs. That's going to be his judge. Harrell Johnson's sentence is life in prison without the possibility of parole. Harrell Johnson appealed his sentence saying first-degree murder requires premeditation and that he didn't intend to kill Erica. But the prosecutor explained to him that premeditation doesn't have to happen the day, the hour, or even the minute before a crime is committed. It can happen in the very last second. The prosecuting attorney also said, doesn't even matter in this case because Erica had lived approximately 10 hours after the beating. And the fact that he and Michelle discussed calling for medical help, believing Erica would die without it, and then making the decision not to seek medical help was in itself premeditation. Precious Doe now has her identity back. She will forever be remembered by those who worked so hard on her case, and especially by Alonzo Washington, who never gave up on finding who she was and who did this to her. Had it not been for him continuing to place that yearly ad in the Kansas City Call, this case may never have been solved. Faith is nothing without action. My faith helped me solve a murder case. On April 28, 2001, a body of a beheaded child in the woods of Kansas City, Missouri, was discovered with little news coverage. I prayed and acted to change that by holding a press conference challenging the community to identify this child by holding prayer vigils, handing out flyers, and taking out newspaper ads for tips. The case became top news and countless images were made of what the police thought she might look like. But no answers came for years. We named her Precious Doe. Four years later, a tipster called me with a tip that identified Precious Doe as Erica Green. Her mother and stepdad were her killers. I forwarded that tip to the police and they were quickly arrested. The pages of the Bible says that faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. 
my faith helped me find out who this missing beheaded child was. My faith and action brought this package telling me who this missing child was. Erica Green was born in prison and discarded like trash by parents that showed her no love. But my faith created a movement that made the entire city love her and bring her justice. With my faith, Precious Doe, Erica Green, will never be forgotten. Faith is real when you act. Erica's second funeral, after her body was identified, was much different than the first one. Hundreds of people attended from near and far, including police officers, investigators, and the entire community. A new marble stone was placed on the gravesite with her picture on it, and under the picture it proudly read, I am Erica Michelle Marie Green. Crime IRL is written, produced, and hosted by Kelly Barron's Brink. We are part of That's Not Canon Network and TNC Productions in Brisbane, Australia. For more information, go to truecrimeirl.com. True Crime IRL theme music is produced by the captain at True Crime Garage. Thank you.